I'm not scared to talk about money. I'm not scared to ask for it. And I say that within reason. I don't think you can just go and ask for a pay rise tomorrow for no reason. But I learned pretty quickly, like, your worth. My name's Lola. I'm 31. I keep going to say 30, but actually 31 already, which is crazy. Um, I currently work in hospitality expansion, which is a really fancy way, well, I think fancy way, of saying that I open up hospitality venues, so bars and restaurants and stadium bars and everything in between all around Australia for our biggest beverage company now. Um, but previously I've always worked in architecture and design, both on the creative side but more so on the business development side for the last seven or eight years altogether. Cool. Thanks for coming on. (laughs) Excited to Um, be here. So let's talk about how you grew up. Yes. I feel like I don't even have the most interesting story, but I could always talk about growing up for hours, which I've told you, I've given you a warning. Um, but I, I spent a lot of time thinking about like how I grew up only because I feel like it gives a lot of answers into how we are as people later on. So I feel like I've spent more and more time. And I think that's something that you and I have spoken about a lot. It provides a lot of answers, but, um, I grew up in what felt like an unconventional family at the time. Like I felt like <laughs> we stood out, um, my parents split up when I was really young. I've got an older, oh, sorry, younger brother, um, and they split up when I was four and he was two. So essentially we grew up with split parents for all of my kind of childhood that I've known. Um, obviously in hindsight lots of families have that, but it felt pretty unusual at the time, and especially when you're surrounded by, I guess, more kind of, yeah, conventional families doing family stuff. Um But at the same time, I feel like it was kind of a blessing with their timing because we never knew anything different, like living between two households, not having that mum and dad or or whatever family unit became really normal. So, yeah, that was kind of childhood. Um, Do you remember anything before they split up? I don't remember anything The only thing I remember is the day they split up, which is not really unusual given it was actually quite a traumatic event for all involved. Like I remember, I remember exactly and I know it's my memory because there was absolutely obviously no photos or anything taken. Um, And as far as I know, I haven't really spoken about it with either of my parents like that particular day much ever. So, yeah, don't remember anything before. Um remember a fair bit after but yeah I think it actually not that you want your parents ever to split up but in terms of timing it's better (laughs) better being earlier than later because I just found it I just thought it was normal um until I got older and realized actually (laughs) it wasn't ideal what do you mean oh there was just I think a lot of hurt and resentment came out later as in I don't remember being upset about it as a four-year-old five-year-old six-year-old but I think as I got older um I noticed things and 
yeah, my parents had a really volatile breakup to be totally frank and it played out for pretty much all of our like young childhoods and I'm talking things that I don't think obviously neither of them ever intended to have happen and it was horrible for them as well. Um, But as a kid like that was our kind of childhood memory is watching, yeah, what can only be described as quite a traumatic breakup probably until like I was 10 or 11 years old. I don't know exactly the age, but that's what it felt like. Um, so lots of yelling and things like that. Lots of fighting, lots of disagreements, lots of uh, playing off on each other, my brother and I kind of being piggy in the middle, um, lots of going through you know, family court systems, getting other people involved, yeah, not ideal, but at the same time, I mean, I don't get angry at them for it. I guess everyone goes into <laughs> being a parent with good intentions. Um, I think they just obviously weren't the best combination together, um, but unfortunately we kind of had to witness that for quite a few years. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> I was going to say... In a way, they were an amazing combination together because they made you. <laughs> that is and true when you look at it. <laughs> when you look at it 26 years later. No, I mean, I definitely think the things like uh, divorce or separation um, can often give people a lot of resilience and offer them a very different life outcome than if you'd had that kind of um nuclear family so I'm not I'm not angry about it I just think there was a lot to process later on and I don't think any four or five year olds doing that tends to come out in the wash later but um yeah living between two households and two kind of lives and two different styles of parenting definitely also had its benefits um from really silly stuff to like you know you'd enjoy seeing one parent and then you get sick of them, you go to the other one. Like that was kind of fun sometimes to having double things. Um, but also the way that mum and dad lived and grew up and their kind of family and friends are all different. So it definitely, definitely helped shape us to a certain degree for sure. So did you see anyone else who was similar in your friend group or it was kind of like or anyone any of your peers or it felt like it was really unusual to be honest I don't remember I mean there must have been other friends around who also had split parents but not at that age that's what I found unusual like as we got older um more and more family you know split and especially kind of end of primary school and throughout high school that wasn't Totally unusual, but to be honest, a lot of my close friends um, still do have parents that are together, so not not really. Not really. There wasn't um, – there certainly wasn't anyone that I remember being able to talk to about it, as in on a peer level, um, until I was a bit older, like probably, yeah, at least five years later. And what some of the stuff that you felt like – you had to 
process. Just being caught in the middle of things that wasn't your fault. Yeah, I think I think that's it. Like you become the collateral in something that you had nothing to do with, no say in. Um, and just at that young age, and I think this might come up later, but like listening to certain things um, definitely shaped how I thought about certain topics and how I approach things even now. And I know that's because of things that I overheard or saw Um I was kind of, you know, forced to go into protection mode for my younger brother. I mean, he's not much younger than me, but at the time he felt a lot younger. They were the sorts of things and then kind of, yeah, being the messenger between the two when you didn't want to be, that's incredibly difficult again at that young age. I think, you know, as you get older, you can probably say piss off or, um, you know, not interested in playing that role, but you don't really know how to respond to that when um when you're a lot younger so yeah look nothing crazy extreme but I think realizing that probably wasn't the best way to do it has come out later um and just the hurt I guess for everyone and for mum and dad as well I mean it's a painful process they still talk about it now and it's literally been over 20 years Mm. so what I just realized in your introduction you didn't say anything about money and your passion for financial empowerment is is that the right way to say it and I wondered whether this Yeah, I wondered whether this, this comes yeah. out in whether that was part of these early themes that you said some things that happened then still have an impact on you today or where that kind of where your work ethic came from because <laughs> I'd noticed on your I don't know why I was on your Facebook which I don't even have a Facebook account active anyway and it, I saw I think it's on your Facebook yeah and it's like hard-working girl or something like that or like real oh do you it's probably something you wrote years ago and don't know that it still I says. definitely didn't write recently <laughs> haven't updated my Facebook by no I think yeah that's what I was kind of touching on earlier that like the money my money obsession in all forms has absolutely been a result of hearing and seeing things as a child, um, both positive and negative. Like the negative side definitely came from like we were not like a struggling family, like struggling to put food on the table at all, but there was definitely some really hard years where it was um, mum and dad both did and and still do run their own businesses and I think that's one positive that I'll get into in a minute. But um the same time when we were younger, I can only assume they were leveraged to the nines um, in terms of like income and also having to hustle at the kind of infancies of their own businesses. And it did mean that we didn't have the same luxuries that um, that other people had. And I'm talking like I remember there was times I went to a public primary school, um, there was times where 
they would talk about how we couldn't afford to go to the, you know, the local school excursion, which I can't remember how much it would cost, maybe ten, twenty, thirty dollars. Um, and so that like was to always a museum in the back of my mind. Something. Yeah, exactly, a museum or cinema or whatever it might have been um, when you're, you know, eight or nine years old. It wasn't so much that they talked to us about not being able to afford it. It was, and again, I I don't know if this is something that I just instilled on myself or it was actually said, but I always felt this guilt about it because it was spoken about in front of us. Um, like I felt guilty for needing money to do things, which is obviously crazy as a young kid because you shouldn't and it wasn't anything absurd. Um, and I don't actually necessarily know that that guilt came from anything that they did or said, but there was something about those interactions that made me feel guilty and kind of started this money, I don't want to say obsession, but interest on a diff- on a few different levels. Um, and something that I also learned from kind of hearing that as a kid was the importance of making your own money and being self-sufficient and self-reliant became incredibly important because I realised from a young age if I made my own money, I could do whatever I wanted. I didn't need to rely on anyone. I didn't need to feel guilty. I didn't need to ask for anything. Um, and that's where, like, things that kind of felt shitty at the time and still do, there's also the positive flip side, which is I learned to work from a really young age, multiple jobs um, from when I was, you know, the legal age of 14 and nine months, I went and got my job the next day. Um, and what, that was also instilled like it was McDonald's as a, as a whatever, normal Macca's chick. I'd heard, I'd read like lots of interview, I'm like founders interviews and books and I just kept noticing that a lot of them would say like Macca's was their best job. So I was like, okay, we go to McDonald's. There was one local to us that I could walk to and from, from home. Where was and that? In Collingwood, before Collingwood was cool, it was really rough. Um, Which one it. is it's that? It's the head on office s- one. On, on Smith Street? Smith no. Street and Victoria Street. It's big, it's busy. There's head office. Yes, and it used I to have be, been there. Yeah, it still is, but it used to be really quite um, hectic and dangerous. So when I was 15, if I had a night shift, I would cab home and it's literally a five-minute walk from where I was growing up, but I was too scared. So at 14, you were already reading books of people who were entrepreneurs? I was reading, yeah, like I was noticing things. I don't know if it was reading interviews or like – read the paper a lot um but then also again like mum and dad had always had their own each had their own businesses so I was working within both of their businesses when I like from younger than 14 and then I knew you had to wait till 14 nine months to have a legal job here in Australia or at least at the time that was it um and Macca's meant I'd heard it was really good training I knew the pay was decent. I knew I could work, like, multiple shifts um, around school and they were really flexible with school. So I ended up staying there for quite a while. Like, I stayed there all through 
high school, I became like a crew trainer. So training like the younger kids um, and running things like events there. Like I, I loved it. <laughs> I absolutely Amazing. loved it. Do you remember, wait, when you're working in your parents' businesses, were they paying you? They were paying me. Um, I think when I was a lot younger, like I would do like silly, dumb stuff at dad. So dad ran commercial bakeries. Um, I don't know how useful I was. I'd like put some labels on boxes. Yes, we did get paid. I remember getting paid. Um, And then as I got older, I think I stopped working for dad because I probably turned into a bit of a princess. I was like, I'm not doing manual, manual labor. And then I worked at mum's. Um, health clinic for probably six or seven years, like throughout high end of high school and all throughout uni. Um, kind of front of house, running accounts and like reception work. But again, I was doing that Macca's and another job actually. Yeah. And was that your idea, or did they kind of get, put that idea in you, like? this is how the world works, you can work and we'll give you money. They never, like, I I think it was one of those things that you absorb naturally. Like I watched them work. Um, We went to after school care because, you know, whoever's house was staying, like mum and dad had to stay back and work. Um, We'd, you know. At mum's would often cook our own dinner. Uh, At dad's would go out a lot because he, they were both just running, you know, crazy hours um plus kind of raising us each individually as single parents when they had them when they had us so I think no it definitely wasn't a pressure thing I just noticed like that was kind of the thing you do um I really liked the idea of having financial independence and then I don't know what happened but at 16 or 17 I decided I wanted to buy a property like there was I'm not sure if I read something my dad would talk about property a lot um, and so I, it's not really out of the blue that I decided, like, that's what I want to do. But from the moment I decided that that was going to happen in my early 20s, I just thought why not hustle and work two or three jobs on top of, like, school and uni. Um, I ended up missing, like, not being able to do a lot of the fun stuff because, you know, I'd have to be at work at 7 a.m. or I'd have to work till 10 p.m., but I didn't find that a bad thing. Like I just was really obsessed with wanting to own a property. So to me it was kind of like a small sacrifice for a big reward. And, again, no one had said, like, you need to do this. Um, but it was something that definitely came up in conversation at home. And what did your friends think about it? Um, I feel like it was really mixed because – Again, I went to a public high school and I only say that because the people that I've, you know, remain really good friends with, it's, we come from such varied families and backgrounds, but most tend to come from like pretty working class families and a lot of their parents like run their own businesses. So it wasn't really unusual. Like most people worked, but I wouldn't say to the extent that I did. And for example, like during uni, a lot of people would just drop would drop work to focus on uni and I didn't. I Instead I would, I think I did like, you know, part-time or three-quarter time um, during uni, especially during my master's, so that I could work. Um, 
I didn't, it wasn't that I wasn't supported, but I also knew I didn't have the luxury of, you know, someone paying my way while I didn't work, if that makes sense. So it was kind of, they went hand in hand. I wanted to earn an income, but I also knew if I didn't, I'd be either like chewing into savings or, yeah, I'm not sure what my alternative would have been. And these savings were for, for this property that you decided you were going to Yeah, buy. yeah. So, and I do have to say, like, I did have the luxury of living at home for quite a while. So, like, mum and dad were really supportive on that side. It just more mean, like, they weren't handing out cash, and I don't think they should have either. Um, but, you know, growing up, we were surrounded by people that did have that. Um, yeah, it was mainly to buy the property. So... I ended up falling a bit short of what I planned. I really wanted to buy something like 21 or 22, um, but I also never wanted to give up on travel and other things. So I kind of always still did like one or two overseas trips a year, worked, studied, and then I bought first little property at 24. Um, so, yeah, it all worked out. <laughs> Do you remember how much you were earning in the, when you first started at Macca's? I want to say like $11 or $12 an hour. And then I feel like as I got older, it was like $15, $16 an hour. And I, I can't remember how many hours I was doing. I guess during high school it was probably like maybe one or two afternoon shifts and then the weekends. So I was probably working, you know, between 10 and 20 hours a week. Maybe not that much, maybe, yeah, 10, 10, 15 hours a week. And then that would just bump up. And then when I was working at multiple jobs, I was probably, yeah, working 30, 40, 50 hours a week. So, yeah, I was earning a decent salary at 16, 17. Yeah. No, I was trying to, this is, I think this just from a, like, foreign perspective, it's like Australia, this is kind of the thing I try and tell people about how good Australia is, that it's like you can earn, because now I think minimum wage is even. It's It's like. 15 or 16. Yeah. Australian dollars. Yeah, 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 because I. I just remember waitressing and getting like $20 cash in hand. Um, but yeah, that was I think good. the, the, <laughs> the idea that you are saying, you know, it's, it sounds, I think to some people it sounds unbelievable that you can be working at McDonald's and obviously you worked very hard and we'll get into some of the money stuff, but about like how you, manage it all because that's the stuff I actually need to mm-hmm. learn from you um but the fact that you can be working at McDonald's buy a property by the time you're 24 and be going overseas like from Australia it's a really far away mm. place and you're oh, going it's, it's it's insane and I guess that's why everyone calls it like the golden land it's it's why you know so many people want to be here like it's why my mum immigrated here when she was in her 20s because it is this like yeah crazy idea that you can have have it all and I think 
like when we were living overseas, I would tell everyone, if you are happy to work hard here, I don't think you can really go wrong. Like there's, at least at the moment, there's enough space for everyone who's happy to put in the hard yards um, to have a place to earn a decent wage. I have different thoughts on it when it comes to like housing security and like cost of living here, but in terms of being able to earn money and have a job, um, at least in our lifetime, it's, remain strong and I mean post-COVID it's literally like it's it's insane you could ask for any job and not going to guarantee you'll get it but you've got a pretty good chance I think that was noticeably different between here and Europe you're also just from a really practical level you're competing with less people here um and you know over here the standard is just different like yeah, people are well-educated, but compared to Europe, you're competing against people that might speak three or four languages, have lived in six cities. Like, it's just a very, very different ball game. But, um, yeah, absolutely. You, Yeah. I do have to say, like, I was able to do that because I lived at home. I think it would – I know other friends who were doing the same thing, but, you know, for whatever reason had to pay rent. Maybe they grew up in the country or didn't have that same luxury – and it wouldn't. I wouldn't have been able to do all that. So, um, yeah, I think it's very circumstantial. From what age? Because you talked about that not getting the excursion money and then feeling this guilt. Presumably, that's to do with feeling like your parents are so stressed, and you're adding to the stress of their financial worries mm. or something like that. And that, and the idea that if you you can be like a better is it like you can be a better child or you can help them if you if they don't have to worry about you and money and then you so if you just earn your own money you don't have to cause them stress or is it something like that I feel like I wasn't that I wasn't oh. that thoughtful <laughs> I think I was more selfish it was more like sorry not selfish I feel like rather than relying on them if I could earn my own money and this is like years after hearing like that excursion example um if I could earn my own money I wouldn't need to ask for it I wouldn't need to have that guilt I wouldn't need to have a conversation with them about it and likewise they wouldn't need to have a conversation with each other um and obviously that got less and less important as you get older because you know you're not five anymore and you need to coordinate things but yeah it wasn't so much like lessening that sounds really bad now. <laughs> Listening the burden for them more so than just not wanting to rely on it because yeah, that you feel guilty. And you don't want that negative interaction in your life. No. So, so then did you, once you started earning money, did you quickly become independent? Aside from obviously you were living at home, but did you... I mean, you said they never handed out cash, but so was it just like, cool, going to the cinema, I pay for this myself? Yeah, I did. Again, and, like, it's not that I didn't, you know, have help at times or, like, my parents were definitely generous at times, but in terms of, like, doing anything, yeah, social things, going overseas, this is once I got older, um, uh, going out, like, that was buying new clothes, anything like that was definitely all on me. Um, 
And I, I enjoyed it, to be honest. Like I didn't, again, it kind of came back to that thing, like I didn't need to ask for it because I would just work an extra shift and buy it myself. And that turned into a bit of a, not an unhealthy obsession, but it became a really satisfying thing growing up because at 15, 20, 25, to start seeing money in your account um, and knowing that hard work or work equates to that became, yeah, like a real <laughs> passion of mine. And I know everyone likes to, like most people like to earn money, but for me it was something about like the reward and seeing that kind of accumulate over time that, yeah, got me on a roll. Um, and then trying to, and this kind of leads into like, my like financial literacy interest was like learning how to make money work harder for you, but also like learning about the power of money and what it can buy you, what it can do for you. Um, And I just noticed things from a young age that other people did that I was like, why would you do that if you're trying to save money? And I think that's something that has carried on for years even today (laughs) when I talk about my you know silly Lola's life hacks and ways to save like a few dollars here and there but that was something I started doing probably from my teenage years to be honest just to like save a bit more money. What kind of things were you noticing about other people? Um just like really irrational spending so it could be anything from when you'd go out like you know would you have pre-drinks at home or would you have pre-drinks at a bar and pay $20 for every drink before you go out um like that's a dumb example but I think people I just noticed people not consciously spending um and I still notice that now like as we get older yeah for some people me. it's just <laughs> Yeah, and it's totally fine, but I think it's something that's really interesting, like especially, and for most people this is the case, when you've worked for that money, that's where I can't link how people can spend it so easily. Um, Oh, yeah, there's so many things with money that I could talk about. (laughs) But that's, that's one of them. So did you feel like there was or how did you feel? So when it sounds like you had this satisfaction of I can pay my own way, but did you ever have feelings of jealousy or towards friends who kind of did get handouts and didn't have to work as hard as you or you were so you enjoyed it working so much that it didn't affect you? Like. Yes and no. I think overall, like for the majority of it, I've preferred earning my own money, knowing that I've paid for things and like, you know, for the most part, everything that I own is a result of work. But I'm not going to lie and say like it definitely (laughs) stings to watch um, other people. I wouldn't say it's jealousy, but it's definitely like, you know, if you've saved up for six or seven years for a house deposit, um, and I'm not even talking a house, I should say like an apartment or a shoebox or whatever you can afford in a city like Melbourne, and then along comes a friend who 
you know, might be given a deposit for a, a, a three or four bedroom family house. That's definitely like sometimes hard to watch. But at the same time, I always come back to thinking like it's not from a place of jealousy. I, I do think like good on them. Like if I was able to have that <laughs> handed to me, I would take it as well. I think it's really about what you do with it and how you respond to having essentially a gift like that given to you. And that's that's where I kind of do or don't judge people. I think like anything, if you can use a gift for good um, or do good with it, then that's amazing. It's different when it's kind of shoved into people's faces or, yeah, not used for good. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that stuff's complicated. Um, the first thing that comes to mind is that have you, have I told you that thing about um, jealousy or envy that Naval's, I feel like I say it so many times because I just love it, that oh, Naval says it's like if you feel jealousy, you can't just be jealous or envious of one aspect of someone. You have to be one, you have to take their whole life. So it's like with Bill Gates, it's like, okay, do you really want to be Bill Gates? Like, he just had this mm. super public, messy divorce. Like, he, you know, he has, he's worked, like, seven days a week for, like, 12 hours for the last, you know, it's, like, cool, he has a private jet, but it's, like, uh, yeah. and I think Does the same. Yeah. So when, um, yeah, you look at someone, it's, like, wow, they're getting this, but it's, like, remembering it's like oh you have no idea you know they might have this awful relationship with their family or you know maybe their parents buying them that house out of guilt because they never you know spent time with them or or you know they have they're in an abusive relationship like so many things Mm. um and but then the other thing is yeah what I've talked to you about that I've and I guess because you're acknowledging like, yes, you, even though you work so hard, like you still lived with your parents. It's like my thing that, you know, when I was in really low self-worth and I was just like, whoa, I've been given, you know, a private school education. I've been given X, Y, and Z and all these things. And I feel bad. Like I need to like pay them back or something to start again because it's not fair or like why do I deserve to yeah when I was going through that thing why looking for a place to live like why do I deserve a place to live when some people live on the street and it's like that's exactly to your point it's like about what you do with things it's just not helpful to be to the no exactly and that's what yeah exactly as I was saying like I really don't judge people because as you said you don't know their background, you don't know their circumstances to how they got certain things. And that applies to everything, not just money. It can be items or, you know, I think it's different when you know something, but on face value, I really, really try not to judge people. And at the same time, yeah, like you're saying that they might get, they might get a lump of money, but that might come with guilt or that might come with hindrances or rules. Um, And at the same time, yeah, is that really how you want to use it I don't know um are they happy I I don't know again so it's yeah I do think you've got to look look at it a bit more 
holistically and yeah there's of course times like <laughs> I'd love more money I'd love to buy yeah. a third or fourth house um is that going to be a reality I'm not ruling it out probably not but I've also become really realistic like my expectations I think are not lower than other people but I've, I feel like I've got realistic expectations of what I can and can't do because I've seen like what I've been able to do largely on my own terms so I feel like that's also a blessing not to kind of think anything is going to be handed handed to me and at the same time if I want something okay well I've got to work out a way to get it yeah so I guess it's that feeling of satisfaction you get that can and then it it doesn't it's even literally as basic as cleaning your room or you know having your stuff together and it's like I put in the work to make my space look nice or something and people discount this stuff as like it's bullshit but it's like actually go and do something for yourself and say see how much better you feel and obviously yeah this is with particularly with people who yeah struggle with depression and things like this it's like it's I feel like it's that related thing it's like I can that sense of yeah satisfaction or something that it's like I can take care of myself and so what you're getting you're doing that on such a bigger scale of like I worked hard and I've bought this flat for myself and that feeling you get will never be matched by someone just being given somewhere to live, right? Because then that person has to, I guess that's my thing. It's like feeling like, oh, I've been given a lot of things. So now I have to go and work and invest, like take, take advantage of those things and then, use it to contribute back to the world Mm. whatever like build more from that yeah but I feel like you're probably more on the unusual side that you feel compelled to do that given that you were you know given certain resources and things like I don't know that everyone feels like that so oh (laughs) like they just feel entitled to it oh absolutely I mean yeah of course some people feel entitled some people might feel neutral. You're kind of on the other end of the spectrum where you feel, yeah, compelled to do something. Um, but oh, everyone's just got such different circumstances. So I feel like, again, it's what you, how you choose to, to use it. Um, and money is one tool. It's also, I was just thinking something you were saying before, like it's also just a form of, discipline and and learning right like in terms of earning money spending money like you said cleaning your room um having the discipline to save for something I think is an incredible skill that you really can only learn by earning your own money in, in whatever capacity that is um and that's something that I'm definitely thankful I've got because yeah it's like everything you can kind of tip it to a dangerous scale, but at the same time, if you've got discipline, you've got a goal in mind, it's incredibly rewarding to see it come to life. And so did you start that kind of 
budgeting, I guess, or like some kind of saving system from the beginning? Like when you saw the money coming in, did you allocate like, okay, I want to buy, I want to buy, like, I'm wondering how, how early the system started because <laughs> I've just put in system. Did I tell you this? That I read the Barefoot Investor and now I've like made the the bank accounts and I'm like <laughs> I need to actually having discipline. <laughs> yes, please Barefoot's do because I love reading point. about it. I think it's a good starting point. It, um, I could definitely the psychology. Send you some books. Yeah, please do because I'm just interested in the psychology. I find it so because it really is that exactly what you're saying. It's like you can trust yourself. It's like yes, I've had the discipline or I guess yeah the self-control like to go and you know I've set a goal and I've worked at it and I've reached it and now and then you get the Mm. reward and that's what makes us feel good totally but it's yeah it's totally an endorphin (laughs) it started it started really young it the system stuff definitely started young. Like I remember writing out, I mean, I'm not super young, but I remember writing out budgets. Um, not really budgets, sorry. I don't actually like budgets and I can get into why. But I definitely was writing down what was coming in and what was going out um, from probably when I was 16 or 17. Again, it must have been around the same time as I decided like to buy um to buy property because I wanted to be aware and this is where like this is probably my like truest passion point in terms of the whole money topic is I just think you've got to have awareness and a lot of people don't even have awareness of the most simple basic idea and concept around money that is you know like a lot of things like money comes in money goes out very, you know, you can apply the same rule to lots of different things in our life. Um, But I just think number one step, like anyone that asks for help with money, I'm always like, have you written down what is coming in and and what you're spending it on? And I'm talking everything because until you've got an idea of what you're dealing with, you're not being truthful to yourself. But also the second part of it is, Seeing that on paper on a, or on Excel or whatever you want to use is a reality check in the best way possible because without seeing it, how can you be accountable to yourself? How can you make change? And I don't think everyone needs to make change, but how can you know, yeah, as I was saying, what you're dealing with? Um, and so I started doing that from a really young age and then as, you know, as you get older, you tend to have more and more expenses, Um phone bills, internet bills, whatever it might be. And so that side of the the column would get bigger and then I would have to work out, okay, something's got to, you know, something's got to change on the income side. So either I work more hours or I get another job or whatever it might have been at the time um, or I ask for a pay rise. Um, and so I started doing that and then, I think from like 17 or 18 and it's my other second favorite thing to do, which is like all about setting and forgetting. I would, again, I had the absolute luxury of living at home. Um, but I would put, I think 50 or 60% of my pay into a separate account the day it came in. And then the other 40 or 50% 
um, you know, 20 or 30% might go to things that you've got to pay. And then whatever was left over, I had no rule on it. I could spend it on travel, going out, clothes, whatever. That was my whole thing. It was, there was no rules. Um, there's this great book called Smashed Avocado and um, oh, the author, it's actually a Melbourne author. I've forgotten her name. She talks about the psychology around money, like you've got to have a healthy relationship with it and not deprive yourself. So like that, again, was something I did from a quite a young age was making sure I had like a chunk of money left over that I could do whatever I wanted with. Um, and I just Because, yeah, you to- can – sorry, go on. I was going to say because you can definitely go the other way and, you know, I know people who – go the other way and find it very difficult to let go of, you know, and they even they accumulate so much to the point of I know very wealthy people in this situation, but they can't. And I'm like, do you want some ideas to spend money? Like, I'm pretty good at it. But it's like they can't um, lose that attachment. So I think that that makes so much sense. And he has that in barefoot as well. It's like having this splurge. It's like, just spend it. Don't overthink it. Cause otherwise Absolutely. you can end up. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a really good point. And I was actually going to say that like, when I'm talking about accumulating money, I'm not talking about like millions. I wasn't ever, I haven't been earning millions, but there's definitely been like times where I have struggled to spend it. And I'm, it's not even on big stuff. It's like little stuff. Like I would feel so guilty to myself for spending money that I had earned and saved on, I can't even think of an example. Like I would never buy handbags or anything that was remotely luxurious, even if I could afford it when I was younger. Um, Again, not because I couldn't afford it, not because it would make a dent on the bigger savings. I just like found it really hard to let go. Um, Travel was different. I've always been obsessed, you know, this with like skincare and beauty, that was different. But that kind of comes back to this idea of something that you and I have spoken about is like money values. Like everyone, and this is another really good exercise for people, like everyone has different values. So the things that you value spending money on, you're never really going to feel guilty about doing that. For me, that was travel and beauty stuff, whereas like a designer handbag or, you know, a hundred cocktails on a Saturday night, that's not a value to me like I love both of those things and now like as I've gotten older you can kind of do it all or you know do parts of it but at the same time you speak to other you know other friends and they'll say something completely different like they'll value the complete opposite they'd rather have beautiful material possessions but they don't care if they don't travel so I don't um, know if a hundred cocktails on a Saturday night anyone uh, feels good about that. Unless no, it's true. like well, you're buy- like you're buying it for other people. I feel like that could be a value. Like I love buying all my friends drinks. But if you're totally yeah. anyone who looks at their bank statement the next day, it's like why? I've done that. But, like I put yeah, like, and- over a hundred pounds behind. It's like why? Why did I do this? And most <laughs> it doesn't people, I feel think- good do do that Delia like again this is just something that I always had in the back of my mind I've got to preface by saying like I think I'm a very generous person with friends and stuff and like I love hosting things and I would never think twice about spending money but when like 
on people that I, I love being around. Um, but growing up when I was really trying to hustle, like, yeah, I wasn't buying rounds of mimosas for everyone. I don't even know who drinks mimosas. <laughs> Margaritas for everyone. Not because I didn't love them, but, like, I just knew that that was a trap. But I do have the same. I've got friends who even now they have one or two drinks and then they just love buying everyone drinks and that's really lovely um, and nothing to feel guilty about. But at the same time, if you're trying to save or, like, work on that, like, that's, yeah, probably not what you should be doing. But, um. But that's also pro- that's probably a lot of behaviour, which is also with you know drugs and all kinds of that. People are like, why did I do this? Why did I go and spend money buying whatever? And it's usually like because you were hammered. It's like you wouldn't have made like if you're the first round of the night. Oh, like you and Bass getting engaged and ba- and like celebrating, you know, with a glass of champagne for everyone. That's so different to like, I'm smashed and I'm going to buy these 20 people who I don't know drinks. And then that's, you know, then you're like, why? That's not a values thing. That's like, I made a poor decision when I was really drunk. Well, I don't think anyone regrets um, being generous when they want to be generous, right? Whether it's, drinks a dinner taking friends on a holiday whatever it might be um but they tend to be like poignant times in your life not every friday or saturday night at the same time like i don't care buying people drinks but yeah i think growing up that was probably an example of something we were talking about earlier that i just didn't do or i'd just be conscious of it like i just would go out a bit later and meet people out rather than kind of being there for four hours before um Mm, so it's strategic. You've got to be strategic. Yeah, I think you have to be to a certain degree. If It all really comes back to what you're trying to do. And, again, it's not like letting go of the things that are important and spending money where you want to spend. It's just more like if that's not something you want to do, like I tend to find I don't do it just for the sake of doing it, especially now that I'm a bit older because you just realise, like like you said, you don't want to wake up on Sunday morning and be like, I didn't actually want to do that. Um, yeah. With and, health as well, it's the same ideas, right? It's like if you know absolutely. Yeah. a group of people that just, yeah, you're going to end up, you know, doing something you don't want to do because that's not how you want to treat your body. Totally, yeah. So did you have, were any friends, because, you know, I know how people can be, especially when you're younger, pick up on like, oh, Lola isn't coming because I know she doesn't want to spend money or, you know, any bitchy stuff like that? Not really. And I feel like I haven't really explained it well. Like I did not participate in anything. I don't feel like I missed out on anything. It was just more like, as you said, probably being a bit strategic about the actual events and what I did. At the same time, there were certainly things like, for example, you know, I didn't go on a few trips at times, um, like overseas trips with friends. Sometimes just the timing wasn't right. Other times it was because, you know, I was working or studying and I couldn't, you know, skip either of those. But, no, I never had any 
negative comments because I just, I genuinely didn't, I don't think I missed out on anything. It's just a different approach to it. Um, the only comments I kind of remember is probably like positive things. Like people always knew that I worked a lot. Um, and I feel like the comments that I would get were probably more self-deprecating to the person saying it because it was like an insecurity of theirs. Like, Oh, you know, was working so much trying to be a hustler and that's actually not on me because I just was working because I wanted to work um and you know by the time that other people were getting their first job not that they'd been very <laughs> interesting jobs but I'd probably had five or six jobs by then so again I kind of yeah I'm sure it's probably intimidating when you're 18 19 20 trying to get your first job, but also navigating things that still I notice a lot of friends don't know how to do or don't know how to ask for. And that's something like pay rises. Yes. That's what I was going to ask. When did you ask for your first pay rise? Um, So when I was like working kind of hospital and retail jobs, I, I never asked like, you, you know, you'd get an increase every year um, or as you like, change roles I never I never asked just because it wasn't that I was scared I just kind of went along with what it was at the time but my first like proper salary job I asked for a pay rise within the first eight months I think it was six or eight months um and that's something I'm really like proud of and like have definitely learned through all my kind of money education is I'm not scared to talk about money. I'm not scared to ask for it. And I say that within reason. I don't think you can just go and ask for a pay rise tomorrow for no reason. But I learned pretty quickly like your worth and particularly within this business I was working for. I knew my worth. I knew how much work I was putting into it. I knew that I could grow even further and I knew what impact I was having on that business. So it made, um, it certainly wasn't easy, but I I had a really strong case for it and my role had completely changed. So that turned into a pretty um, regular (laughs) occurrence in that job. I was probably asking for a rise, yeah, every 10, 12 months. were you nervous or it was just very clear to you, I deserve this? Um, oh, I'm, there's always a bit of nerve. I think I was incredibly lucky that that job, I had a really close relationship um, and strong relationship with my boss. So we always spoke about things openly. So I was never like going into those meetings, having never spoken about it before, which helped a lot. But And I was also working on the business side. So I had like direct insight into what I was doing and what that correlated in terms of their revenue, but also kind of pipeline work, Um, which again is a bit of a luxurious insight that not everyone gets. Um, Definitely nervous. Yeah. But people should, I mean, not necessarily that you're going to get to see all the numbers, but you, if you're doing a job, you should have an understanding of, you're working for a business whose goal is to drive revenue and it's like how does my job allow the company to do that? Like if you don't know that, 
you know, and working at McDonald's, it's not something you really have to ask because you know they make money by selling burgers and you're serving a customer, the customer, you know, that's the transaction. But in any job, you should have an understanding of it because otherwise you'll feel like, why am I even doing this? Like you need to be connected to the goal. Uh, Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And I think that is something I've always been intrigued by and interested in. But I have to say, like, so many people, a few things, don't don't know their worth to start with, which is incredibly debilitating, but it it also comes from a, a confidence thing. But secondly, don't question that. They don't know, like you said, they don't know that their work directly correlates in most cases to revenue um, or they don't ask or they're not interested. And, again, this comes back to that kind of whole broader idea and interest about money that I've got is a lot of people just aren't interested in knowing for whatever reason. It might be that it's intimidating. It might be that they genuinely don't care. There might be people which is not a, a negative thing, but are just happy to rock up to work, clock on, clock off. That's great. You know, there's a lot of different circumstances. But, um, yeah, I, I agree with you. I think it's so important to know your value to a business, your value to yourself. Um, and knowing both of those things and and knowing if they don't, if they're not equal with what you're earning, like that's grounds for asking for a pay rise. I really I was in a fun, like an interesting circumstance that I was out of business that was growing quite rapidly during the years that I was there. So my job did change every three to six months and that's what, why. What type of business was it? Um, I worked across two businesses. So it was an architecture firm and then the other side of the business, which they're actually same founder and boss but not linked, was essentially like a housing development company. So I was kind of double-timing it. Um, and is that your first – sorry, I keep interrupting. Is that your first job after uni? That was my first, yeah, proper job after uni. I'd had a few bridging jobs between like Maccas and retail work and this job, but that was my first proper full-time, you know, 50-hour-plus a week. What retail job did you do? I worked at Country Road and David Jones for also um, a really long time. Like David Jones, yeah. Probably five years, yeah. Okay, so this is you finish your Masters of Architecture. Architecture, that's, yeah. So- that's another thing that obviously, oh, my God, so much we could talk about, but obviously you felt you were able to do a Masters knowing that you can you know, that you could manage that time. Like you didn't feel like, because a lot of people wouldn't, it's a financial decision, right, in a part to do, to continue your education. Mm. Oh, absolutely. But it was definitely, it was definitely a hustle and a struggle at times. Like I think every degree is hard. Um, I can only speak of the one I've done, but architecture altogether for me ended up being a bit over six years. Um it's incredibly intense. It's <laughs> it's a lot of long hours um, on campus, but then the actual coursework is unrelenting and, yeah, a lot of all-nighters every week on top of, yeah, on top of work and, you know, trying to be normal and still have friends and exercise. Um, and a relationship. And a relationship. 
multiple relationships in that time. Um, yeah, no, it was, a, it was a lot of work. But again, that was just something I wasn't willing to compromise on either doing, like I didn't want to do one or the other. I really wanted to do both. And for me it meant dropping down to uni like to three-quarter time so that I could still work a bit um, and then also having a bit of time off in between both degrees. Um, and actually before I started, like I took a gap year between high school and uni, that was really important to me to be able to travel and kind of decompress a bit before what I knew would be a pretty crazy few years. What did you do in your gap year? Went to Germany. I worked a lot <laughs> and then I travelled travelled all around all around Europe um, with a friend, met other friends for a couple of months and then I think I came home and worked because, again, I just <laughs> was like, oh, I may as well work. Um, I also just I didn't know any different or I wasn't very good at like I've never been good at just sitting and being still. So I think I worked, travelled, then worked and then started started uni the following year. Um, mm. Oh, that's so, okay. We have to go back to the pay rise, but I also realised we haven't talked about Germany, how your mum's German, how you, yes. tr- the independence you had as like, was it like you're a 16 year old and you went over by yourself? Yeah, 14 or 15. Yeah, so mum immigrated to Australia from Germany in her early 20s. I think she was 23, 24, which is pretty incredible because it's obviously nothing like now. You don't have the connection and um, ways of staying in touch. But what that meant was as a result we, and I didn't really speak about this earlier, but we pretty much lived like, (laughs) sounds so dramatic, but like we had kind of two lives. Like there was like Australian life and German life and even when things were tough, and and I guess this is why things were tough, we still went to Germany every year, um, which is pretty amazing that that mum and, and her family um, would make sure that would happen. So Germany's always been like second home. Her whole family's there. We grew up speaking German. We went to German school. We went to school in Germany for a while. I skipped or not skipped. I that? missed a lot of... Hmm? When did you go to school in Germany? I went to school there in year four or year five for a little while Um, and then on and off through high school we'd spend a bit of time, like chunks of time there too. So spent like an incredible amount of time and each trip like we'd go for a while because it's not easy to pop in and pop out. Um, But... Where would yeah. you fly via? Sorry, I'm just done. Um, I've seen uh, the stats of the people who listen to this and it's uh, it's only like 30% Australian, so we've just got to paint a picture oh, yeah, of a global audience. To... Oh, there's a German, there was a German audience member recently. There you go. <laughs> Don't kind of help Deutschplan. <laughs> no, I won't speak in German. Um, early days, I think we always for Singapore Airlines. We'd go Melbourne, Singapore, Singapore. Frankfurt before they flew into Hamburg and then like later yeah. on you do Singapore Hamburg because my our family's right up north. And then so it's like 20, 24 hours or whatever. 
Yeah. Yeah, 24 hours. Oh, I time. think the best you can do it even now is 21, 22 hours, but most of the time it's like 24, 25 hours round trip. And then probably the last 10 years have mainly gone via Dubai or Abu Dhabi because then they would fly directly to Hamburg. So it saved a, another trip from Frankfurt to Hamburg. But um, And then that there are Yeah, Germany has been like... Farm. Your mum's family. Near Hamburg. Yes. So, yeah, mum grew up, yeah, well, like 45 minutes an hour north of Hamburg, really rural. There's more cows than people. Um, It's tiny. Like there's a couple of hundred people in that area. So, yeah, complete opposite to Melbourne life. Really beautiful area, very quiet. Um. Yeah, I think we loved it as kids and then as I got older, <laughs> didn't love it so much because I definitely think I'm more of a city slicker. Um, so it was quite hard being in a really still and quiet environment there. But um, it was really special. And, again, like, you know, I talk about some of the negative parts of growing up with a family that was a bit strained but on the flip side, like, we were given this opportunity to have so much time over there to have a German passport, to speak German, which, you know, felt like an annoying (laughs) hindrance as a child having to go to Saturday German school, but now I just can't thank mum enough. Um, And then the other really important part of that was my grandparents over there. Like I was always incredibly close with my two German grandparents and my Australian grandma um, and they just, yeah, they played such a special part in our life, but just were a huge support and sounding board. And I, the ability for them to be there for us as grandparents, but also to kind of be a bit of a barrier and sort of like laugh behind mum and dad's backs when things are really crap is something that um, will always stick with me. So, yeah, Germany and Europe in general has played an incredible part in my life and then coming back to money for me that's something I'll never ever give up like I'd rather not buy anything materialistic for years if I know that I can get there frequently that's much more important to me Mm -hmm. so okay I want to ask you I feel like we'll just have to do a whole another episode of your adventures as a 15 year old on your own traveling around yeah I didn't even get to that getting (laughs) Is that when you got a tattoo or that was separate? No, that was a bit later. Um, Yeah, I remember being like, so we travelled a lot from like, I think mum took us to Germany for the first time when I was maybe six months or eight months old. So that's always been a constant. At 15, it's just going to sound wacky to other people, especially here in Australia because travel is, you know, as we've discussed, it's, it's a big ordeal to get over to Europe just even in terms of like flight times um and distance but at 15 and 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 how much it is right and you know how much how what's kind of the cheapest flight you can get to Europe I mean now it's gone crazy right but um at the moment it's like this year I paid 1800 or 1900 Australian dollars which what's that in pounds 1200 pounds Mm. No, Maybe? like half. Thousand? 
Okay, yeah, like a so thousand. like a thousand pounds. And then I've looked for next year and it's about the same. So that's actually, I think that's a really good price um, for summer, that is, for European summer. It obviously like mm. fluctuates. Um, but yeah, 15, I'm not sure where the idea came from. Oh, I had my like very like best friend at that time. Her parents were both from the UK and they had moved out here. And so she kind of understood this like hybrid life between countries and her parents definitely weren't Australian and were still kind of finding their way. And for some reason we decided we wanted to go to Europe, but both sets of parents, okay, my dad was definitely not on board, but my mum, they didn't find it unusual because my mum had travelled by herself all across Germany and Europe from when she was like 12, 13, 14 years old. Like that was Why? Like, and this Just is like without fun. phones obviously. Um, to see family, to travel, like it was mainly like visiting family, but that just wasn't unusual. So I think, trying to justify it, in her head at 15, she was like, Lola knows what she's doing. We've done this trip a hundred times. She has a friend. We weren't like going, like we were visiting friends and family for the most part of it. Um, We did have some time in Paris by ourselves, but I remember at the time I was in high school, like I still have friends today being like, your parents were whack for letting you go over there. And I guess it is a bit wacky, but it wasn't weird for us. Yeah. So I went when I was 16 or 17 to France on my own, but that's exchange. So it's like you are being passed on to a family. Like the idea of you staying in Paris on your own. Like where did you even stay? Oh, Paris Paris was a bit wild. It didn't go um it didn't go quite to plan. We'd like booked this kind of like tour thing. Not tour, but like an all inclusive package, but um some things went wrong and we like lost the tour group, but at that stage I mean we had phones but like you were using like it it just wasn't Kentucky no no it wasn't Kentucky no it was much (laughs) daggier than Kentucky it was like all different age people but they were like older it wasn't like a party bus it was like a tour that was going from Germany to Paris or with other Germans because we'd like come from Germany um and they give you accommodation yeah it was like all included but um yeah, a few things went wrong. It was a good lesson learned. Um, for the most part, everything was fine and we stayed with, like, a lot of family. But, yeah, a couple of things definitely went wrong, particularly at the end. Like, my friend, um, she was always great, but she was really bad. Like, with, she'd always, like, lose her phone or, like, you know, at that time you always had to carry cash on you. It's not like now where you can just use your travel card or credit card everywhere. And she would just, like, forget to get money out before she was flying to the next country and would literally get stuck without, like, couldn't get in a cab or anything. Um, And then on the way home we had a medical um, emergency with her. So, like, yeah, it definitely didn't go all right. But we came back alive um, just (laughs) literally in the last eight hours. I thought maybe (laughs) Maybe this won't go so well. Um, but, yeah, it wasn't, like, a weird thing in my family for that to happen. 
or to be, you know, to be able to do that. Okay. I really want to ask you how you feel. I feel, okay, I feel like we genuinely will need to do another episode if you're up for it at some point because I think people's reaction to this might be like, hang on, two trips a year to Europe for like a thousand pounds a ticket, um, buying a flight, and Melbourne isn't cheap, right? It's like the average house price is a million dollars now or something, right? Or- yeah, I think average housing is like 1.2. I'm yeah. not in a house. I should <laughs> I should say that. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um buying a property all from working at McDonald's, like Pete or from, you know, working these multiple jobs but and putting us up, you know, going to uni, people are going to be like how does this actually work? Um but which I think probably the key to some of these things is in like asking for these pay rises. So I want to go back to that, but first I want to ask you, how do you feel about this culture um, or this kind of attitude that it's like life is so hard for us, for our generation. We will never be able to afford houses. We will, you know, the gut we need, the government needs to give us X, Y, and Z or um, also the kind of, sentiment around like yeah that whole it's funny that book's called smashed avocado i wonder if that's to do with what was it a guy a young guy who said that he bought multiple properties and people need to stop eating avocado on toast and then it was um, like it was our politician who yeah said like stop eating this is so bad i'm really bad with politics who said like australians need to stop eating smashed avo to afford housing as in, yeah, so, the idea yes. thing, we spend all yeah. our money on brunch, on brunch rather than coffees and brunch. Absolutely. And that's, I don't think, totally untrue to a certain degree. But, no, that's a good question. This comes up around dinners, like probably on a weekly basis, this idea of like, so right now, and I hate like being like Australia, Australia, but I guess that's like what I know best. But right now, as far as I know, our parents' generation, so those who are in their kind of 50s, 60s, 70s, will be the most wealthy and, um, should I say, like fortunate generation that we've kind of experienced thanks to kind of their parents. So, we, you know, we've seen an influx in, like, they're reaping the rewards of some really clever and long-term investments, both in stocks and property, and also we... I don't think we're at the tail end um, yet, but we are kind of at that in the middle or at, oh, no, not at the end. We're in one of our biggest housing booms that our country's ever experienced. So I think it's a really, really interesting topic. Um, that's where, again, it gets hard, like back to that earlier question we were talking about when like people are handed to them. Our, our parents, and I say that as a, as a generalist term, that's something that I do find hard to watch and it's not because I don't think that they shouldn't have it but we're seeing our grandparents generation pass away and our parents generation sometimes being left with you know literally millions thanks to investments both in housing and the and the finance market so 
that's one side of it. I definitely hear a lot of the other side, which is kind of like, you know, poor us, our generation will never have it good enough, tax our parents, you know, um, how do I feel about it? Oh, to be really honest, I don't think it's a simple solution. I, I don't agree with penalising those people because of it. Um, but at the same time, I do absolutely agree that it will probably not happen for us in the same way that it did for our parents. We won't, most people our age won't be able to afford housing. Like I, I don't know the exact stats at the moment, but I know pre-COVID it was kind of like, 50-50 between rental and purchasing property in Australia or definitely within Victoria and New South Wales. And I can clarify that um, because our market's pretty different to what you experience in Europe and the UK. We've predominantly been a purchasing market because here the rental market's volatile. You're on a year lease and every year you're kind of at the mercy of the landlord. Yeah, well, in Germany it's like the state owns a lot. Of, and then they control the whole market and then mainly so private yeah mainly like private companies now but if you're on what was called like an old lease in germany your rent couldn't really increase and it was essentially like never ending so that's like a very different model we don't really have anything like that here at the moment we've sort of starting to see like trickling in of um you know rent to buy schemes but it's it's nothing like for example, that you see in Germany. Um, but what was I saying? Back to like, yeah, it, it is a really interesting question because we are not going to reap the same reward that our parents did. I just don't see how it's possible. Like it's not going to be viable unless you're born into or receive wealth some other way later on to be purchasing properties at, you know, now two or $3 million. It's, but what do you think about how, like, what you've achieved? I think this really comes out to a mindset thing, to be honest with me. Like, and I, and I said that earlier, what I've achieved is great. It's also very relative and I've been really realistic about it. Like, I don't sit here and... Again, I'm not ruling it out, but I don't think I'm going to own a six or seven million dollar property anytime in the near future. Like that, to me, is not a realistic goal. Um, I've also got to couple that with like having spent so much time in Europe. My expectations are different. Like I'm really happy living in a beautiful apartment that's going to cost me half a million to a million dollars less than what a lot of my friends are looking to buy. Like. So that's where my expectations and goals change. Um, yeah, but it's also it's also like why do you need a $6 million house? That's kind of Absolutely, and I could spend like another hour people. talking about why people, especially in Australia, have this obsession with owning big property because it also comes with a whole host of other money, things that we could talk about in terms of maintenance and upkeep and like, actually realising that you've got to pay for that over the long term. But, um, yeah, I think our expectations have to change and that's for everything. But also we, unfortunately, like with our housing prices increasing, and that's for the most part every 
major westernized city across the globe, our cost of livings are also increasing, but our wages are not increasing in line with that. And that's what we're experiencing now. Like, yeah, that's, that's where I do think it's so important to know your worth and also at a certain point, if you do your budget or you, you know, you do your two columns of money coming in and coming out, if it's not adding up, something's got to change. Either you need to be making more money or spending less. Um, and sometimes I've had to do one or the other. I've also, yeah, no, I wouldn't say fortunate. I've also made like decisions at certain points to, you know, change jobs or ask for more money when it was appropriate because I feel like that's important and it's also the way that you get ahead to a certain extent. So how do you approach these um, pay, rise, pay rise conversations? For me, or if you go, a... yeah, go on. Even I was, I was going to say, even if you go back to the first one, and it's like, okay, how you prepare, as in really practical advice for someone, because I think it's like, oh my god, how do I even like do that? But if it's like, okay, this is how I prepare, then I message my boss. Can we have a meeting? Then we sit down. Like, what was it? What, what was, was it process? like? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and it's absolutely daunting. It doesn't matter how confident you are. I think like asking for a pay rise is one of those situations that's like it's you're very vulnerable because you've kind of worked something up. I'm going to assume in most cases you know you deserve it or you think you deserve it, um, and then you're kind of putting yourself out there and waiting for an answer. In terms of like really practical steps, so each and every time I've done it, there's been a few steps. So one is like I will note down everything I'm doing that's above and beyond my whatever it might be, my my title or my job description. And that's easy for anyone to do, especially if you've applied for a job on whatever, LinkedIn or Seek. Like you can see what has been asked and you can start like I would start noting. And not just for a day, I would do this for weeks and months, like things that I'd noticed that I'd been initiating, things that I'd done that hadn't been asked, not silly stuff. I'm talking like bigger kind of decision-making or business decision things. So I'd note that. My second part would be putting together um, a bit of research in terms of like similar roles and what they were being advertised at. So, again, I'd jump on whatever it might be, LinkedIn or another platform and find out like are there any roles out there that are the same or similar what are they being, um, what salaries are they offering? And then pretty quickly, you know, I'd work out either, okay, cool, my salary actually is in line with what other jobs are or hang on, this is like substantially less. Um, in certain industries you can also find out like, so in the architecture industry that I was mainly working in, I won't even get into the complexities, but there are award rates like you get in hospitality, like there's minimum um, salaries per level. And so two things happen. One is that you could pretty easily see if you're being paid above or below that. And the second thing is as I kept changing jobs, I knew that I couldn't be pegged against that particular um, pay scale. So those kind of three things in combination gave me the confidence that I knew what I was asking for. I'd do that. I would... 
I would practice it, like not standing in front of a mirror, but I would go through the different scenarios of why I was asking for it. Because at the end of the day, like I've helped a few other like friends and coached them through doing it. You've absolutely got to know that you deserve that pay rise. I don't think you just, you know, roll over another year at a job and ask for a pay rise. That's not, that's not my ethos at all. Um, but I'd play that out and then I would all normally always write it in like a simple but like kind of letter form, like a one pager about why. And then I'd have a meeting about it. So I'd pretty much not read out that letter, but use that as kind of a basis for what I was asking for. Um there's like that, but I also like I can't ignore that I did have and that would you, strong relation. Would you give them that? Yeah, I would give that. Yeah, I would then have it, give it to them, either like email it to them or something in writing, I think, definitely. Like everything, and, whether you, yeah. And then how do, have the conversations tended to go over the years? So within that job, I was there for quite a while and I think, yeah, I must have changed roles and salaries like four or five times. Um so they it said was yes, always, basically. They said yes every time. And then I think my last pay rise before I resigned um, was given to me on, like, merit. Um, I'm not actually can't remember why. I think I knew I was going to leave, so I hadn't asked for it either. It was, like, a, a nice surprise. Um, yeah, I think... You've got to do you've got to do the work in terms of being prepared, but there's also a lot of work for people to do like within themselves. And I've like said this to a lot of girlfriends when I've been talking them through it. You've got to know and believe that you're worth that pay rise. And it's this is where like money is much more than just a you know financial thing. Money gives you obviously freedoms and access to things to a certain degree. But it can also be like a huge source of insecurity. And so that's like a couple of, yeah, girlfriends that I was helping, I would just notice like they genuinely didn't think they were worth more, even though from a complete outsider objective view I knew they were and I could do the research and I knew they were being underpaid, they genuinely felt guilty or like they were a hindrance for asking for more. And so I have to say like you can do all the prep work and you can, you know, stalk people on LinkedIn to see how much they're getting paid, but you've also got to know that, yeah, you absolutely deserve it if that's the case. Wow. Yeah, this is such a big topic because this is a part of the gendered pay gap that people don't understand um, Mm. that, yeah, this is kind of, how things happen right not even you know I've missed I guess I've been in system much bigger organizations where there's a system there's a rating system raises happen at this time and so it's like very clear what you have to do and and you know exactly but that's the other thing that's crazy so it's like I would know the cycle like I know when bonus when the bonus is coming I know when Mm. the pay the rise conversation's happening but I've talked to people, I will never forget this, someone, one of my friends saying that she got a pay rise at the annual time when the pay rises happen. 
And she was so shocked. She was like, what? You're giving me more money? I can't believe it. I'm like, that was cr- that was so crazy to me. Because um, that's one thing being like not even knowing the cycle. It, because it's also like inflation. It's like the cost of things increases. So your pay needs to increase to mean that, you know, you end up yeah. on the same. Yeah, otherwise you're actually being able to afford you're worse this- off. Yeah. And but, that's something that I'm now kind of experiencing. So now that I work corporate side, it's like you said, there's cycles. There's particular days and weeks every year where everything's reviewed. If it's not reviewed, like you're waiting till the next year, um, which I'm really not used to. It's not necessarily a negative, but it's just a completely different way of approaching it. But two things have come out from like this more recent work is, yeah, one is if you're not even getting like a, you know, the equivalent of an inflation pay rise every year, like it's actually costing you more money to go to work, like to be at work. Not like I was saying you shouldn't work, but it's costing you more than it was last year to be there. Um, but two is like I don't know that I always agree with that system because, of course, it's based on performance, but it's also like it's at a very particular time and I don't think that that is always suitable Um Although I do understand because in a corporate where, you know, for us there's 3,000 people in our office, you, you you actually couldn't be running, you know, pay reviews whenever everyone felt like it, it just wouldn't work. So I, I do understand it. Um, but from an individual side, it's it's definitely a change in mentality. But And you can always – sorry, that's what I was going to say. I didn't – because all everything seems standard, like the sign-on bonus and things like that, that I've been fortunate to have at some of the – jobs but I didn't realize like I just took everything as given it's like here's your bonus and I'd be like okay thank you whereas then later I would talk to usually male colleagues but not always male colleagues and I'd be like why didn't you negotiate that why didn't you get more for your sign-on bonus and I was like what I didn't even know <laughs> you just don't know that was a thing yeah. but that's the way that often I mean it's obviously way more complicated but people paint this gender thing as like a very black and white issue when it's not because all these conversations happen all the time of people saying okay you're offering me that but actually I'm going to negotiate and even with these cycles we're talking about there's nothing stopping you from saying okay we're not it's not the actual day same with promotions but to say I know the promotion cycle is only once a year but actually you know talking to someone who you're close with and it's all about relationships to your even you know you're saying that at the smaller business but that still exists in these bigger companies if you don't have a relationship with someone who's looking out for you like which is a whole nother thing about damn i need to get someone who's like a um you know expert on this gender stuff and what's you it's know, a whole other women. topic isn't it yeah yeah but i do think it comes a lot it comes back a lot to like confidence and I think across the board we know um, and it's been very generous but women tend to be less confident especially in a business setting Um, we know that even from job applications and and yeah asking for pay rises and and things like that but yeah if you don't have the confidence um, even if you have the relationships there whether you're in corporate or small business or working your own business um if there's no confidence, you're not even going to be able to ask for it, right? 
Yeah, and because people can't read your mind, people it can seem obvious from the outside that you might want to, like you can feel like it might be obvious, but people don't know what you're thinking. Absolutely, yeah, and it's. I mean, I think a business owes um, owes their employees being paid, you know, a fair and reasonable wage and in line with, for the most part, like market demand. But at the same time, on their side, they are not there to <laughs> check in on everyone if they want to pay rise every six or 12 months like that's not in their best interest either they're running a business um so yeah a lot of people just don't know what's out there um or don't know how to ask for it. and I think just coming back to that like breaking it down um into really kind of simple steps and building a bit of that confidence in yourself makes such a huge difference mm-hmm you know, we haven't even talked about you working at the sex toy place in Berlin. <laughs> I love that you brought that up. No, we haven't. Maybe that is another episode, yeah, a different I topic. I know. That's no, also that... just going to sound really um, vague and blasé to anyone that doesn't know me. In the corporate office, to clarify. Yes, we should be clear. <laughs> in head office <laughs> for a very interesting Berlin-based company. Um, but, yeah, I was working in project management and product development, which is a whole nother mini career oh, that yeah. I had. Yeah. Um, okay, well, we've been chatting for an hour and a half, so we should probably wrap up as much as, yeah, there's so much more we could talk about. Um, I think it's so awesome, by the way, that you are willing to help other people. And that. That would be, I think that's the most valuable stuff that people are probably like, will be like, please get Lola on to teach us more. Because it is like, it's it's like you've figured this stuff out, but you're willing to say like, you know, because you could be like, great, I've got the confidence and other women or other people don't and they're just going to fall behind. But you're like, no, everyone should be able to do this stuff. And that you're like, it's actually not that hard. Once you learn all the systems, Once but I think the learn. hard thing is it, it. The hard thing is definitely the internal work. But definitely anyway. internal work. Yeah. No, I think. Oh, I'm happy to come on anytime you want me. But I really try to be everything I know and learn and have done is not revolutionary. I don't think I'm an expert or anyone who's special at all. But I do think that's one thing I try and live my life by, which is being really generous and helpful to people wherever I can. And that's one thing I've noticed is just like this is particularly for like friends, like being a soundboarder, helping be that person that they can talk through, asking for a pay rise or looking for the next job or finding something else that satisfies them. Like if I can do that, to me that's... um you know, a gift in itself to be able to offer that to people. Like I absolutely love it. Um, And, again, the stuff that I'm doing is so simple. I don't own $10 million properties. Like it's nothing crazy. But even perhaps talking to people about expectations and how to get there is enough to, you know, help someone kind of set up on their money journey and I think you do something way cooler than 
owning $10 million properties, which is taking your friends, including me, on holiday to Florence, which is pretty insane. Which, again, I feel like people are going to be like, how is this real? We need her to teach us these, all this stuff. Happy to teach. Happy to take you on a holiday anytime. I shouldn't say we took everyone Just on me, holiday. not the audience. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> true. Maybe one lucky person. <laughs> um, is there anything else you... I'm aware of how much I cut you off. Sorry about that. So is there any... Like when I feel like you were going to say something and then we went off track. Anyway, so is there anything that you didn't say that you wanted to say? No, I feel like... oh. I think I covered everything. I mean, there's so many other little things I could talk about and even like back to childhood stuff, there's just so many things that I think of now that come up later. But, no, we definitely covered a lot. I feel like an hour and a half is a lot for people to listen to my late-night voice (laughs) too. Okay, last two questions. What is... Actually, three questions. Do you practice, do you have any practices to help? um, Do you have any mindfulness practices, basically? This is a trick question because you know that I'm not very good at, like, meditating and mindfulness. Um, No, these these are the questions I said I would ask every guest, but I've been bad at asking them. Because I think this whole, the whole thing is to bring back that we all struggle with various things in our life and that meditation. Yeah. I don't know why I wanted to make this a question. No, I think it's like, a good how question. How do you manage anxiety or things like that? Which oh, some people... I, it, it's a good question. And, I, again, I could talk about this. could be like a whole other episode. But I'll keep it, like, short. I have, and you know this, like, struggled with anxiety and, like, bouts of depression for a really long time and it's not... I talk about it more now, but I think I never wanted to admit it for years. Um, And it's funny you ask that question because the thing that has always come up when I go to therapy or speak to different friends is like you've got to, you've got to meditate and you've got to, you know, do mindfulness things. And I never, I've never done it until recently. I literally have never prioritized it. I've always done other things like, exercise a lot or cook or travel like not that that like cures the day-to-day um deep anxiety that I get but that's been kind of my way of doing it I recently started so I'm obsessed with Jay Shetty um I love his podcast I love his book and so I recently started his calm app which is just seven minutes of mindfulness a day I'm good some weeks (laughs) really bad at doing it every day but I feel like all I promised myself was to like get started on it and then you know like everything do it more and more till it becomes a habit so I'm not great at like being deliberate about mindfulness work or meditation work but I think I've become a lot more aware I sit with a lot of my feelings and thoughts I think I'm a very self-aware person, like even when I'm in those incredibly low days, I know what's happening. And so I think 
you know, maybe that's a skill that I'm <laughs> lucky to have. I can I can tell what I'm doing, so I, I am mindful in that way. But long story short, I'm not very good at prioritising doing the actual work. Um, I bought Jay Shetty's book in India. Yeah. It was there to, in the airport. I was how like, to live wow. like a monk, how to be a monk. Live like a monk. Think think like a monk. Think like a monk. <laughs> it's yeah. great. It, it's really like a written version of his podcasts. Um, and I have to say, like, if I'm ever having a particularly crappy day, I will gravitate to his podcasts. I find them really grounding. And there's always something to be, like, learnt and absorbed from them. So you'll love the book. Um, okay. And then on books... You mentioned Smashed Avocado, but is there any, and Jay Ashetti's book, but are there, is there any other book that's had a massive impact on your life? Actually, I wanted to ask you, what's the anxiety book you were reading? And is she an Australian author? Because I was. Yeah. So that's, um, that book's really good. It's Sarah Wilson's book and it's called um, Make the Beast Beautiful Again. I think that's the title. That book is really good. Um, I feel like I didn't even read it that long ago and I've always, like, been aware of kind of what's happening to me, but that book really was like seeing a lot of my life on paper. It's a great book for anyone that has anxiety or knows someone that has anxiety because it explains a lot. Um, Yeah, I always forget to recommend that book, but it's really good. Other books, oh, money-related ones. I've read so many. I actually tend to gravitate more towards like founder stories, like people that have hustled to make something. Like that's always what I've gravitated towards and I'm talking everything from like Phil Knight, Shoe Dog, through to, um, you know, Sheryl Sandberg, book um and Brené Brown lean in lean in so lean in is a book I've probably read it two or three times I give it to a lot of people to read again it's a little bit like barefoot investor like there's some things that I think are in there that are a little bit you know outdated but as a whole I think it's a great book um there's another great book just kind of on that same topic this is more in like women business, motherhood, finance, but um, balance and other bullshit or BS, which was written by, and now I've completely forgotten the author as well. It's really bad. That's another really great book which kind of talks about women in business balancing multiple things, particularly in terms of parenthood, and that's not something (laughs) that I'm experiencing, but it's like the whole premise and idea was really, really interesting. so they're kind of more Where's like, she from? Uh, she is, oh, she's either Australian or American. I think she's Australian. That's really bad. <laughs> I've forgotten. Have you they're kind of the, like. On the finance books, have you read Rich Dad, Poor Dad? No, I haven't. I've heard about it a hundred times. Um, I haven't. I've heard it's good or worth reading. Um, I've seen people reading it, but I haven't read it. 
So, yeah, there's so many like finance and business books. They're not actually my my, my favorite books. Are nothing to do with finance and business, although I love them. But I I always try and alternate because it's also yeah. I don't think everyone should be constantly learning. Otherwise, you never relax. What are your favorite books? So many, but I think the last couple of years the books that stood out is Educated by Tara yeah. Westover. I mm-hmm. tell everyone about that book. I'm not even sure why. I just think I read it and was so moved by her story and just incredibly well written. Um, and oh, I actually want to my... try and get her on this podcast. Oh, I incredible. love her story. And incredible. Yeah. Because she went to Cambridge, so. Okay, well, there you go. Yeah, she would be, I just, yeah, absolutely reading her books. The other two that have stuck with me that are not related to anything but um, maybe should talk to someone, which is by, who's that by? Laurie, Laurie Gottlieb, or Gottlieb um, which is actually about a therapist who goes into therapy herself. I couldn't put that book down. It's incredible. It tells the stories of real people. And then this book that I read. Is she American? She's American, yeah, I think based in New York. It's really well written. It's funny. It's sad. It's truthful for anyone that goes to therapy or is interested in therapy. It's like you can't help but, like, laugh and cry at it. Okay. Um, Adding that to the list. Yeah. And then my last favourite book, which I just have to mention, which has nothing to do with anything as well, um, it's probably the first book that I read when I was younger as a proper novel is In My Skin by Kate Holden, who's actually a Melbourne author. It's actually about um, the sex work industry, but it was the first book that I read that I realised how powerful writing was and she wasn't a writer by trade. Um, It's incredible. Wow. And it's non-fiction or fiction? Non-fiction. So I pretty much only read non-fiction exclusively. How old were you when you read that? I'm not sure. Not, not, I wasn't like super young. I just think it was the first book that I read that really stuck with me outside of like yeah. books that you'd read for school. I'm not sure, maybe 18. Someone, someone might have recommended that to me recently. Um, So many books to read. Okay. And then... Last question, what are the three words that describe the person who you want to be in the world? Thoughtful, impactful, and my last word would either be kind or generous with my time and as a person. Nice. Okay. Thanks, Laura. Thank you.